For months and months and months, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has been telling people the same thing. The euro must be saved. The euro is far more than a currency. It's a symbol of European unification. And it's become the symbol for half a century of peace, freedom and prosperity. That's why I'm saying, over and over again, if the euro fails, then Europe will fail. And according to Chancellor Merkel, there is only one way to avoid that fate. This means that we need to further develop the European Union structure. This does not mean less Europe. It means more Europe. What the German Chancellor means by more Europe, but won't say, is moving towards a political system that has been around a long time in the European context. Former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was prepared to call it by its proper name in October 1990. The European monetary system to which we belong is a system designed for 12 sovereign states in cooperation with one another to come to an exchange rate mechanism. What they're proposing now an economic and monetary union is really the backdoor to a federal Europe, and we totally and utterly reject that. The F word, federalism, is a strange word to excite such passions. Maybe because even the experts find it hard to answer the question, just what is federalism? Um, good question. How do I define federalism? Uh, uh, federalism, I guess, is a form of government whereby... There's a lot of um, pooled responsibility. It's a complex system of government with two levels of authority. If I was looking at it as a system of government, I would say it's to do with self-rule and shared rule. For some things, we govern ourselves and have autonomy. And for other things, we share authority and decision-making for the larger common good. Federalism is, above all, the protection of diversity. It's unity and diversity reconciled. What federalism is, why federal systems come into use, should be common knowledge. There are examples all around. The best known is the United States, of course, but many European nations are the products of federalism as well. Germany, Belgium, just to name two. Yet the F-word, in the context of the current euro crisis, remains a source of confusion and controversy. It's odd that this word should seem so unclear, since it has been a term in political theory for centuries now, says Professor Michael Burgess of the University of Kent's Center for Federal Studies. The earliest in the Anglo-American tradition, I call it, might be in modern political philosophy, would be John Locke in 1690 in his Treatise of Modern Government. You'll find the F-word, as it's known, in Locke's treatise. And then that comes through the British philosophical tradition, through, for example, right up to John Stuart Mill, who was an advocate of, of federalism in the 19th century. There is a different tradition of federalism on the continent, Burgess points out, and, almost inevitably, it has its origins in Germany. The founding father of that is Johannes Althusius, a German Calvinist magistrate who wrote his Methodica Politica Digesta, known as The Politics, where he establishes a definition of federalism derived from the Latin term fedus, meaning bargain, contract, covenant. So it has certain theological underpinnings to it, and this is also true in the Scottish Enlightenment tradition, where you can find people like John Knox. It was the question of Scotland and its relationship to England that brought about, arguably, the first examination of the question of federalism in modern history. 
In 1706, Queen Anne wrote a letter to the Scottish Parliament. An entire and perfect union will be the solid foundation of lasting peace. It will secure your religion, liberty and property. Remove the animosities amongst yourselves and the jealousies and differences betwixt our two kingdoms. It must increase your strength, riches and trade. And by this union, the whole island, being joined in affection and free from all apprehension of different interest, will be enabled to resist all its enemies. In its talk of the benefits of an entire and perfect union, Queen Anne's letter is using the discourse of federalism. The word hovered around the years of occasionally fraught negotiation leading to the Act of Union, says Dundee University professor of history Chris Watley. It became apparent very early on during those discussions that this was a form of federal arrangement. That is, that there would remain a certain distinctiveness about the situation, which um, remains to the present day, actually. Did they use the term federal? They didn't use the term federal in the legal agreement, in the Articles of the Union, no. There was discussion, however, outside Parliament, both north and south of the border, of what sort of union was wanted and what sort of union would be acceptable and yes, the, the idea of a federal union was discussed, was mooted. Initial talks on a union were held in 1702 and collapsed. But by 1706, the war of the Spanish succession had concentrated minds. This was a genuine crisis. Catholic France was rampant on the continent. There was an imperative, in London at least, to create a Protestant union on the whole of the island of Britain. And it didn't matter if Protestantism in Scotland meant Presbyterianism rather than Anglicanism, says Professor Watley. There you have at the very outset uh, an element of what you might call federalism. That is, you had a union of two states, of two nations, but with two religions existing within this new British state. And within the context of the whole history of unions across Europe, and there were many, many unions in the early modern period, this was very, very unusual. At one level, the F word means you give up some, you keep some. The Act of Union secured the Hanoverian succession. There would be no Stuart return to the English throne. So the Scots, or the Scottish leadership, gave up something. But they got some things back. Scottish business interests were compensated for losses in the New World and given open access to trade in English colonies. The Scots kept their own legal and educational systems because... because the English really didn't care, according to Watley. North of the border, it was a different story. There was hostility north of the border to the Union. The Scots were a divided nation. There was a small number of Scots who were very much in favour of the Union. There were probably much larger numbers who were opposed to a Union. There were many don't-knows. But by and large, there were enough people in the Scottish Parliament to support the notion on the grounds that they believed this to be, at the time, in Scotland's best interests. Exactly 80 years after the Act of Union, 13 of Britain's former colonies in North America were facing big problems and trying to figure out how, in the words of Queen Anne, to form a more perfect union. And in an echo of Europe today, the stumbling block was economic. No money. Professor Pauline Mayer of Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The United States had defaulted 
on a payment to France. We were just a little worse than Greece. We actually defaulted, and there was a big part of the principle due in 1787 the Confederation didn't have a prayer. Now, this meant that the United States, whatever it was, was bankrupt. Whatever it was, the 13 states were not united. During the Revolutionary War, which began in 1776, the rebellious colonies operated under an agreement called the Articles of Confederation and Union, which authorized the Continental Congress to organize and pay for the conflict at a national level. But when the war ended in 1781, the colonies began to act as 13 independent republics. They issued their own currencies, raised their own taxes, had tariffs between one another, and failed to pay their share of the war debt. Professor Mayer. This was a cause of tremendous concern, certainly to people like Washington, who said we were simply not a respectable nation. A respectable nation paid its debts. Out on the Appalachian frontier, there was rebellion. Along the coast, there was chaos in trade, no central authority. What to do? Amend the Articles of Confederation, sure. But how? The F word. A new constitution was written, and it would simply, briefly, elegantly create a paradigm for striking a balance between local and central political authority that could bind a diverse group of republics together, although that's not how it seemed to many in the 13 states at the time, according to Professor Mayer, author of Ratification, The People Debate the Constitution. When the Constitution was first published, there was enormous shock because the convention was not supposed to design a new government. It was supposed to be proposing amendments to the Articles of Confederation. So it acted literally without authority. And then the extent to which it increased the power of the central government was itself shocking. So there was the better part of a year in which Americans fought tooth and claw, if you will. The fight was mostly verbal and fought in the public prints, and the byproduct of this verbal fisticuffs was the Federalist Papers, a collection of 85 opinion essays written by three of America's founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay. Published in a New York newspaper under the pseudonym Publius, they were written to persuade the people of New York to vote for the ratification of the Constitution. The authors channeled Queen Anne's arguments, indeed quoted her approvingly on the benefits of uniting sovereignties and warning of the consequences of disunity, as Alexander Hamilton does here. A man must be far gone in utopian speculations who can seriously doubt that if these states should either be wholly disunited or only united in partial confederacies, the subdivisions into which they might be thrown would have frequent and violent contests with each other. Hamilton quotes his contemporary, French philosopher Abbé de Mably, to emphasize the point. Neighboring nations are naturally enemies of each other unless their common weakness forces them to league in a confederate republic, and their constitution prevents the differences that neighborhood occasions, extinguishing that secret jealousy which disposes all states to aggrandize themselves at the expense of their neighbors. The argument wasn't all one-sided. Inevitably, a group of anti-federalists began publishing pseudonymous reposts. One of their leading lights was the Sentinel. 
Sentinel speaks to me. He well, was see, very a, angry because the Federalists said that those who oppose the Constitution are trying to, to break up the Union into regional confederacies. And he just had enough by January 1788. This hobgoblin, he wrote, appears to have sprung from the deranged brain of Publius, a New York writer who, mistaking sound for argument, has with Herculean labor accumulated myriads of a meanings, unmeaning sentences and mechanically endeavored to force conviction by a torrent of misplaced words. It wasn't just the need for a deeper union that people argued about. It was who would raise the taxes, who would guarantee the debt. Hamilton was for a central bank that would be the repository of the full faith and credit of the United States because, he wrote, Money is, with propriety, considered as the vital principle of the body politic as that which sustains its life and motion and enables it to perform its most essential functions. But the sticking point was who would be in charge of these essential functions. James Madison wanted to retain some powers for the individual states as a bulwark against an overweening central authority. Eventually, the Constitution, first line, again with echoes of Queen Anne, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, was sent to the states for ratification. They were to hold individual conventions with popularly elected delegates empowered to make the decision. Even as this charter of federal principles was in the process of being approved, a document containing ten amendments to it, the Bill of Rights, intended as a counter to over-centralization, was being written. Knowing how strong the anti-federal feelings were, the Constitution's authors made a brilliant tactical decision. Only nine of the 13 states needed to ratify the document to bring it into effect. Even then, it was a close-run thing, says Professor Mayer. Rhode Island persisted in refusing to even hold a convention to consider the Constitution. It decided, no, we'll just have a referendum. And the referendum voted it down something like 2,700 to 230. Rhode Island was to the 13 original states what Greece is to the Eurozone, the smallest member and the one with a reputation for corrupt business and governance, and one with a cavalier attitude to its debts. In a foreshadowing of today, the other states came down on Rhode Island like a ton of bricks. The Senate passed finally in total frustration with Rhode Island, passed a bill that would have precluded all trade with Rhode Island by land or by sea, have threatened anyone who carried trade with, with a confiscation of their ship, a very heavy fine, and a jail term. With that, they collapsed and voted with a margin of two votes to ratify. History is written by the victors, not just military victors, but political victors. Federalism took on a quasi-religious importance. America embarked on its federal period, a cultural, not political designation, with tunes like the President's March making the rounds. think of federalism as their pragmatic saving grace and write its basic principle in Latin on their money, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. 
In Europe today, money and the many have not quite become one, and the F word is on everybody's lips. In Brussels, one recent afternoon, guests were registering for a debate sponsored by the European Policy Centre, a Brussels think tank, called A Federal Europe, the only way to save the euro? Um, good afternoon. We're starting sort of in relaxed Brussels time. Considering the economic crisis engulfing much of the eurozone, it seemed a bit too relaxed. The session, attended by Eurocrats, diplomats and policy analysts, wasn't so much about a federalist solution for the Eurozone crisis, but whether it was safe to use the F-word at all. People tend to still speak about federalism as if the concept had not evolved since the late 19th century. Gaetan ricard Niul, analyst for the European Commission. Um, so you still hear a lot of people using the term actually referring to very different things. So I think if we could manage after this session to have opened the door to different understanding uh, of federalism and realize that this is a concept that is, is actually much richer than what people tend to think, I think we would have progressed uh, quite a lot today. Over 90 minutes, there wasn't much progress in reaching a definition of federalism. Existential interdependence was the alternative phrase used by the European Policy Center's Yanis Emanoulidis. After the session was over, Emanoulidis was accosted by an earnest American undergraduate. And then in the future, could you not say that other countries could be creating another union in a union? For example, the four presidents together, maybe you got pooling and sharing that the EDA is vouching for, which is maybe another speed, as you said. The, I think that the problem is that we can talk about hours about that. What are the, the terms which you're using and everyone and I'm also using? You need to clarify and we together have to clarify what we mean. So if you say union in a union, what is a union in a union? Emanuelidis read the Federalist Papers at university and acknowledges they can offer a limited guidance to Europe as it takes steps to form its own more perfect union. People look back and think, you know, where are the comparisons? Uh, what can we learn from these experiences? Are we ready to take certain steps? Which, if you look back, because you mentioned uh, debt and banking solutions, where you made a giant leap and you took over debt from others and were you ready to do so? But is that comparable to what we have within the European Union? I don't think so, for different reasons, whether they're historical, they're cultural, they're linguistic, whatever they are. They're dirty. And, and also our experience. And we have 60 years of experience of European integration, which helps us sometimes to overcome difficult phases. I think if you wouldn't have that experience, the, this crisis would have probably led to much more of a, of a confrontation than what we've seen. On the other hand, it's also an experience which might stop us to do certain things because we have certain experience and we might not want to go along a certain line. Emanuelidis is the living embodiment of the Eurozone crisis. His father is Greek, his mother is German. He describes the political response to the crisis as reactive, ambitious muddling through, each step tending towards a federal model for the Eurozone. I think that if you want to really overcome this crisis, not only manage it in order to gain time, but to overcome it, you need a higher degree of centralization when it comes to fiscal and economic affairs. There's no way around it. Now, what that means in concrete terms, 
nobody can tell you at this point in time because in the end it will be a consensus and a compromise. But yes, there will have to be a higher level of centralization. Would that mean that you would have also more of a federal system? Probably you would have more of a federal system. You already have in place federal or supranational institutions. Yet Emanolidis, like many in Brussels, is reluctant to use the F-word in public. The F-word? I think I have a problem with the word federal because it has so many different connotations and understandings. So if I tell this to someone from the US federal system, he has a different understanding than someone in the UK or in Germany. So if we use the federal word, and I think that it doesn't help you to find a common denominator. It just helps you to, it's like a concept where some people love it, some people hate it, some people think of it as A, some people think of it as B. So I think I want to be more concrete. Federal phobes and mere federal skeptics often point to Europe's linguistic differences as the key cultural reason there is no federal solution possible for the Eurozone. I'm not so sure. No one on the panel spoke English as a native tongue, yet the debate was held in English, a language the participants spoke with perfect fluency. Afterwards, though, a few of them retreated to an earlier dominant European language. I interrupted Luc van Midler, who works for European Council President Herman van Rompuy and Gaetan Richard Nuyul, to ask why they shied away from using the F-word. Federalism in the UK is basically a code word for undermining the free trade area on the continent, which is another way of saying socialism. But in other countries it means other things, and that's why it's very difficult to have a sort of scientific debate about what federalism really means, because you have all these uh, connotations which are part of the political uh, reality we have to address and it's yeah but is it our role to abandon the concept because they are unclear or is it our role to try to clarify them it seems a little late in the day for clarifying meanings considering the parlous state of the eurozone certainly europe's anti-federalists like open europe's peter klepp are much more certain of their position federalism more concentration of power and money basically fiscal transfers within the eurozone they will not uh, solve the euro crisis for the simple reason that they don't deal with the birth defects of the euro, which are that countries have very different levels of competitiveness. The debates go on. In Brussels, in Frankfurt, the eurozone problem is clear. Its solution is obvious. But somehow the F-word itself has become the problem. Germany's member of the board of the European Central Bank, Jörg Rasmussen, recently coined a new euphemism for federalism, further sharing of sovereignty. That's not exactly a rallying cry for the masses. What do we want? Further sharing of sovereignty. When do we want it? Now. It's more difficult to define federalism than to explain why federalism comes about. Federal solutions look most attractive in times of crisis. Professor Michael Burgess of the University of Kent's Center for Federal Studies points out it was Winston Churchill who first prophesied Europe's federal destiny as the continent lay divided and smoldering following the Second World War. Churchill, in 1946, in his University of Zurich speech, declared that he supported a United States of Europe, but he didn't include the United Kingdom in it. So in other words, federalism was for others, not for us even though we were past masters at exporting it. 
Whether or not it was Churchill's words that inspired the founders of what is today the European Union, by the mid-1950s, they had embarked on creating federalism with a European face. It was a new form of federalism, which we can call incremental federalism. That's to say, instead of a blueprint and a political solution, you have incremental, step-by-step, piecemeal development towards defined economic goals. However, there was an unforeseen flaw in this approach. The problem with it has been that it's it's used economic uh, methods to achieve political goals. And, of course, there comes a certain point a critical point where when you have so many economic achievements that the political achievements lag behind. And so you have to strengthen the institutions, the decision-making processes and so on, as it were, to, to make the union more effective and efficient in a changing climate. The European project is a moving target. It's a moving thing. It's a living, breathing thing. In the United States, federalism took root out of the crisis caused by revolutionary success. There had been no real planning for what might happen the day after independence was achieved. Economic disaster was imminent. Federalism is not, however, a panacea, says MIT professor Pauline Mayer. It is a viable solution, I think, to the problem of having rather heterogeneous societies with common interests that need to be addressed collectively. But defining how to do that or deciding how to do that, it takes tremendous care. And even with great care, politicians make mistakes. Look, the Constitution isn't perfect. And nobody who had a hand in framing it thought it was perfect. They said it was the best they could do for their time. That may be the key point to understanding the F-word. It is not a dogma that must be adhered to, like Marxist-Leninism. It is an eminently pragmatic approach to crisis resolution. After the colloquium in Brussels, I found myself speaking with someone in the audience, Kevin Layden, a retired Irish civil servant who had been former Taoiseach John Bruton's advisor on the Euro's creation. Layden explained the word as clearly as anyone. The definition of federalism is practical. You can't go and get one uh, model off the table. The United States is a federal state. I was sitting beside a very nice young Austrian lady. She is in the Bundes federal system, which is very different from that in Germany. So here we have a series of different interpretations, and that's why I go back and say people wanting to work together but who are diverse need institutions that allow them to cooperate, and that we might call federalism. Will the island of Ireland ever be federated? The biggest question facing the two islands is what will happen to the federal republics of the United Kingdom after 2014? (laughs) That is a very serious question. How will the United Kingdom handle the diversity in the modern setting? A reconfirmation of the Acts of Union or a new struggle for new institutions to represent that diversity? Perhaps that is the essence of federalism, a system of governance that admits that today's structures might not work in the future, a point made by a Scot, David Hume, 250 years ago, and quoted by Alexander Hamilton in the final number of the Federalist Papers. To balance a large state or society, whether monarchical or republican, on general laws, is a work of so great difficulty that no human genius, however comprehensive, is able, by the mere dint of reason and reflection, to affect it. Hume goes on, The judgments of many 
must unite in the work. Experience must guide their labor. Time must bring it to perfection. And the feeling of inconveniences must correct the mistakes which they inevitably fall into in their first trials and experiments. The F word. Flexibility in the face of human fallibility. That may be federalism's true meaning.